Good morning, New Life. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you would use this time of preaching to build us all up in faith and to cause us to see your goodness. Lord, speak through me that what I say would be wise and right. And Lord, I pray that you would open the ears and the hearts and the minds of everyone who is watching this, uh, that they would see you alive and active and powerfully speaking to them through your word. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Anthony said earlier, uh, I'm Tim Geiger. I'm a teaching elder in the PCA, and I'm also executive director of a nonprofit called Children's Jubilee Fund. Maybe you heard me speak here uh, about two months ago. But I haven't always been executive director of Jubilee. And I'd like to ask you to imagine with me and imagine back to a time before the pandemic, if if you can do that, because everything uh, that's happened over the last few months just kind of seems so big and so so, uh, formative in our our minds. Imagine back before the pandemic. Imagine back before 9-11. Imagine back before Y2K. Imagine back before cell phones and before the Internet as we know it. And you'll go all the way back to 1986. And for some of you, you'll, you'll have to borrow your parents' imagination to get back that far. But back in 1986, I worked for the Internal Revenue Service. That's right, the IRS. And back then, in 1986, when a taxpayer called us and asked a question that we didn't have the answer to right off the top of our heads, we, we had to go someplace to find it. And the place we would go to wasn't a computer. It, it wasn't our cell phone. It wasn't uh, any, any kind of electronic device. Those things didn't exist. No, we would go to this huge manual called the Internal Revenue Manual. Now, if you think about how complex the United States tax code is, the Internal Revenue Manual had to explain all of that in detail. It had to give all of the different answers to all the different questions that could possibly come up. And so this thing was tens of thousands of pages long. And we used to have to go and we used to have to search through the Internal Revenue Manual to try to find the exact answer to the exact question that the taxpayer had asked. And for some of you, sadly, this may be why you're still on hold with the IRS from 1986, because we're still trying to find the answer. So those tens of thousands of pages of of rules, of policies, of of procedures, might, might seem to the uninformed observer superfluous. They might seem redundant. They might seem excessive and unnecessary. But each one of those policies and procedures and and rules reflected in some way the will of Congress in the way that they wanted us to live out the tax laws that they had set. And as I said before, the, the manual itself was so long and so comprehensive because it reflected the tax law, which itself was so huge. Now, comparing the imperfect internal revenue manual to God's perfect law isn't fair. Even the most generous comparison would have to look like the IRM as a child's first scribbles in comparison. 
But my point is that God's law says the same kinds of things about God and about who he is that the Internal Revenue Manual says about the tax law. God's law reflects the character of its author, and it leads us to understand not only how God wants us to live, but why he wants us to live that way. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 23, uh, and the text will also be on the side of the screen. Please read along with me. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month." After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, And on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gates of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you will purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is God's word. So the text today that we're going to be looking at actually comprises five whole chapters in in the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 21 through 25. And just as a heads up, Anthony is going to be preaching on different aspects of the same passage next week. And we have to admit that if you were to just read these five chapters in Deuteronomy, it would be a lot lot rather like reading the Internal Revenue Manual that I talked about a moment ago. Lots of statutes, lots of policies, lots of procedures. And if you were to just take those five chapters, and I I would encourage you to do that, it would probably take you half an hour, um, you'll see that 
they don't necessarily have a lot to do with each other, just on first read. And again, you're just taking these five chapters out of context and, and reading them on their own merit. As a matter of fact, there, there are so many different laws and statutes in here that in your, in your Bibles, the, the headings that they give before certain uh, groups of passages uh, often say things like miscellaneous laws or various laws, just because th- there are a whole bunch of laws in those sections that don't seem to have any connection to anything else. So I, I went through and I counted these laws. And just by my count, and I'm, I'm not uh, the, the writing a commentary or anything like that, but I counted 53 distinct laws in these five chapters. And if we organize those 53 laws into categories based on what, what the content and the focus of the law is, we can group them under 11 different headings. And we'll, we'll look at those a little later on. But some examples of what those headings would be would be marriage, divorce, and, and sexual conduct. That, that would be one heading. There are a lot of laws that have something to do with that. Another heading would be caring for your neighbor. How do, we, how do we live in community with one another? Another would be what it means to be God's people. Another would be justice. And, and so on and so on and so on. But even though the laws in these five chapters cover a lot of ground in, in terms of what they're about, they all share some things in common. They each tell us something about God, and they tell us what's important to God. And in doing so, they reveal some things about who God is, how he wants us to relate to him, and how he wants us to relate to one another. Something else to think about is that none of these laws stands on its own. Each of these 53 laws in these five chapters is an application or or an explanation of how to apply the Ten Commandments in daily life. Look, Look at the laws we looked at uh, just a few moments ago, the law in verses f- uh, 10 through 14 about marrying women captured in wars, an application of both the seventh commandment to not commit adultery and the tenth commandment to not covet your neighbor's wife. The law in verses 15 through 17 about preserving the inheritance rights of the firstborn is an application of the eighth commandment to not steal. The law in verses 18 through 21 about dealing with a rebellious son is an application of the fifth commandment to honor your parents. And the law in verses 22 and 23 about burying the body of a criminal after he was hanged on a tree is actually an application of the first commandment. We know that because the Lord explains in verse 23 that living the cursed man's body on the tree overnight would defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And you can tie each one of the other 49 laws in these chapters, indeed all of the, the other 603 laws in the Old Testament, back to one or more of the commandments. God, God cares so much that we would understand how to live out his law that, that he gives us practical explanations of how to do that in Scripture. So consequently, these these laws work together to tell us, yes, these laws actually do have something to say to us today. Now, 
that's as true for the laws that we still follow today as those that we don't. And there are a lot of good reasons why we don't follow every law in the same way today. As we look at the individual laws, I'll I'll try to draw some of those reasons out. But even if certain laws aren't binding on us today for particular reasons, in their original contexts, these laws still tell us a lot about God. And that understanding benefits us today. Now, one overarching remark to think about as, as we get into this. On a first read, it's sometimes difficult to understand why God would allow some of the situations mentioned in these laws to happen in the first place. Some of these situations and some of the laws that govern them, govern them rather, might seem insensitive or even offensive to us uh, sophisticated and woke people in the 21st century. Particularly, some of the the laws about the rights of women in society and about slavery might seem completely out of touch. But the time in this sermon that we have doesn't really allow us to talk so much about the difficult-to-understand passages in the law. But there are a few things I'd like uh, us to keep in mind as as we go through this. Remember that we're living in the year 2020 in the United States and not in the 13th century B.C. in the ancient Middle East. The the culture and the social norms uh, that the people who first received this law experienced were very different from what we experience today. And as a comparison, just look at how much our own social norms have changed in, in our society over the last hundred years. If you went back to the year 1920 you would find a very different world with very different priorities and and very different societal societal norms than we have today. Just think about the difference over 3,300 years. Something else to keep in mind, as as we look at at hard-to-understand passages, is that God never condones evil. Sin is never okay with God. Even when we see the hard things mentioned, like like the women captured in war in verses 10 through 14, what God calls his people in Israel to do is to treat such women with with respect and with dignity. And one of the reasons God gives this particular law is that Israel's enemies would not have shown any mercy to women in the same situation. They likely would have taken these women and made them uh, slaves or, or sex slaves. God doesn't want Israel to behave like the unbelieving people around them. So he gives rights and dignity and social standing even to captured women. So we're going to look briefly at the broad themes uh, of these laws uh, under three headings. The first is the law reveals who God is, the law reveals what's important to God, and the law reveals our need for Jesus. And as we do this, Let me warn you, because I know you're already beginning to have an anxiety attack because you're looking at the clock uh, and you're saying, wow, you know, you're not even on the second point yet. How long is this going to take? The first point was the longest one. So moving on to point two, the law reveals who God is. As we look at these 53 laws in these five chapters of Deuteronomy, what are some of the common themes we see? 
Well, I'm going to offer two of them to you. The first is that God is good. God is good. Five of the laws uh, in these five chapters are followed by the statement uh, from the Lord, purge the evil from your midst. So he says, do this, and in doing this, you're going to get rid of the evil things that are in your camp. And God tells us this because he knows the destructive power of evil in the lives of believers. He knows how it destroys society. We see evil at work in our own lives and in our own society today, threatening to destroy marriages, threatening to destroy relationships between parents and children, threatening to destroy friendships, and even the love that we should have for our neighbor. Tim Keller likens the destructive power of evil to the way fire destroys something. He says it literally disintegrates it. Evil and and sin, the specific ways in which people commit evil, do the same thing to us. They destroy us, and they destroy the relationships that God wants us to enjoy. God is good, and he wants to protect his people from those harmful consequences of evil in their midst. But the second thing that these laws tell us about who God is, uh, is, is that he cares. He cares. God is kind and merciful. He cares about the daily details of each person's life. Look back with me at the, the passage we read earlier. In verses 10 through 14, God is concerned for the welfare of the unbelieving women who are victims of war. And so he sets up structures to protect them and take care of them. In verses 15 through 17, God is concerned not only with the son of an unloved wife, but with the wife herself. He he gives this law so that the futures of both the son and the wife would be protected for the son in his adulthood and for the wife in her old age. In verses 18 through 21, this is more of a, a tough love command meant to warn rebellious children about the consequences of their action, giving them an opportunity to turn back to God and repent before it's too late. Because God cares about these children. He wants to see them return to him. And in verses 22 to 23, even though here God is primarily concerned with not defiling the land that he is giving to Israel, Taking down and burying, burying rather the body the same day is a tremendous act of mercy and dignity, even to the condemned criminal and his family. To leave the criminal's body on the tree overnight would mean that his body would be eaten by wild animals. Burying his body shows that God wants to show mercy, even in punishment. Perhaps during these very unusual times that we live in, You're tempted to think that God isn't good or that he doesn't care about you. I know sometimes I think those same things. But look even at these laws in Deuteronomy, given by God to his people 3,300 years ago. Listen to what they say. God is concerned with prisoners of war, with, with widows and unloved children, with rebellious children, and even with the families of dead criminals. Don't you think he cares about you? 
Look with me at Psalm 111, beginning in verse 2. And this is from the New International Version. And again, it'll be on the side of the, the screen. Psalm 111, beginning in verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Now, what's happening here? The the psalmist tells us that the Lord is gracious and he's compassionate. And he tells us both in verses 2 and 10, the first and the last ones that I read, that one way to experience God as gracious and compassionate is to meditate on his works, his precepts, his laws. Hasn't God been gracious to his people throughout history? Won't he draw near to you now and be gracious to you as well? Let's move on to talk about the third point. What, what does the law reveal about what is important to God? So what are we able to glean from these five chapters that tell us what kinds of things are important to God? We, we can begin to understand what's important to God by looking at the topics of the laws that he gives to his people. And again, this will be on the side of your screen. All of the categories... And again, this is just my own homework. All of the categories that I was able to put these 53 laws into will appear over here, and it will show you how many laws in each category I I feel should be there. But the top three categories are the ones I'd like to have us look at right now. And by far, these are the categories that have the most laws that fall into them. The first one is caring for your neighbor. There are 16 laws in these five chapters that all tell us how we ought to care for other people. The the second uh, most populated category is something that I would call covenant holiness. And, And what this means is just that God is holy. He wants us to be holy and, and his covenant, his, his, uh, great promise to us to be our God, to be our redeemer. To, to be the one who provides for us and takes care of us uh, is is of critical importance. And so uh, 11 of these uh, laws have specifically to do with how Israel and, and how God's people today should, should live uh, in relationship with him. But the third category, marriage, divorce, and, and sexual conduct, uh, returns us to the horizontal realm, to to relationships with other people around us. There, there are 10 laws that fall into that category. So caring for your neighbor, covenant holiness, marriage, divorce, and sexual conduct. Two of these categories, the, the first and the third, caring for your neighbor and marriage, divorce, and sex, are about how we interact with one another. God really does care about the flourishing of human society, and he cares about each one of us. He wants to see human relationships redeemed because through loving one another well, we each reflect God's love into each other's lives and into the world around us. 
But he also knows that it's only through loving him that we are able to authentically love one another. And so if loving others is the product of loving God, then we need to love him first. And as we love our neighbors well, and in doing so obey God's law, we simultaneously live out our love for him. Does this remind you of anything? Have you, have you heard this any other place in scripture? I'm reminded of Jesus' com- uh, statement, rather, of the greatest two commandments in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And this is what is said there. And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus says here is that we, we can't love God without loving one another. What I, what I said a moment ago. And we can't love one another without loving God. And he goes on to say in verse 40 that every other law in Scripture is an application of these two laws. Love God and love your neighbor. During this time of the pandemic and and all the changes, the stresses, the anxieties that it's brought us, do you struggle with loving God and loving your neighbor? I know I do. There are many, many ways that that plays out. I I get annoyed easily with with other people. I'm looking for different ways to to deal with the anxiety, to quiet the the rumblings of my spirit, to quiet the the worries that I have about the present and the future. Everything is so uncertain, I'm, I'm just looking for a way to try to take a little bit of control of everything around me that seems to be going haywire. So I'm going to ask you this. Have you asked the Lord to reveal some of the ways in your own heart that you haven't loved well over the last few weeks? Are you willing to ask him to expose your own sin to you? Are you going to ask the same question that David asked at the end of Psalm 139, where he says, essentially, Lord, examine my heart, see if there's any unclean thing in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the first question. The second is, what are you asking the Lord to help you do in order that you would become a better lover of him and of those around you? Are you willing to ask the Lord to give you that, that different perspective of yourself and what you can do in order to turn to him, to find your comfort and hope in him, and to walk in repentance. Let's move on to the final point as we wrap up, and that is the law reveals our need of Jesus. I don't know if I made you uncomfortable by asking those questions just now, but they make me uncomfortable to think about because I'd like to think I'm essentially a good person. I'd like to think that ordinarily I do a pretty good job of loving God and loving other people, and there are ways in which I fail, but 80% of the time, I'm right on the mark. 
But the truth is, I don't love God consistently. Much of the time, I try to live my life independent from Him and His authority. I, I, I look to ways to take control of a life that seems to be often spinning out of control. And I know I certainly don't, don't love those people around me as well as I could. I often, often put my own interests and myself first. And those are my good days, if, if I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I just don't like God, and I, I don't like other people. Now, I'm hoping that I'm not the only one who feels that way. If, if you're anything like me, uh, you can probably identify with what I'm saying. And this is the point that I'm getting to. Even on our best days, we're only 80, 70, 50, 20% capable of keeping God's law. We fall way, way short. As a result, we all deserve the punishment for being uh, lawbreakers. What is that punishment? The, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that breaking God's law deserves a death sentence. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you and I deserve to die because of our sin. But God loves us so much that he, he gave his only son Jesus to die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Because Jesus died on our behalf and paid the wages of our own sin, you and I have been set free, set free from that death penalty. We, we can live with joy and hope because, as Paul tells us, we have eternal life in Christ Jesus as a free gift. As we look at the law this week and in the weeks to come, remember that one of the chief purposes of the law is to point us to our Redeemer, to the one who gives us a hope that we can't conjure up ourselves. And that person is Jesus Christ. Even though we don't keep the law perfectly, he did during his life on earth. And he died to take in his body the punishment that you and I deserve in order that we would be set free from sin and death forever. My prayer for all of us is that we would become people who rest more and more in the freedom of God's free gift of, of forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. But maybe you don't feel that comfort or that hope. Maybe you wouldn't even identify yourself as a Christian right now. Would you reach out to, to one of us at New Life and, and talk with us about that? Would you call or email the church or even click on that button below the window that says something like, pray now, and ask for help to believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Would you even pray right now that God would suspend your unbelief, that you're worthy of his love, and that you would find the comfort and hope that is yours only in Christ Jesus. And now it's time for us to wrap up and 
uh, move on to our closing song, but I'd like to leave you with just one image of, of what this looks like, that Christ died on our behalf. Last night, uh, I was taking our dog for a walk in our neighborhood around 10.15, and uh, we were walking down the street. It was dark and deserted. Uh, of course, anytime you go out during the day now, the streets are deserted. Uh, but uh, my dog was stopping and sniffing, and I, I heard some cracking behind me. And I, I turned around. There was no one there. But it sounded like branches cracking. And I just assumed that since we had a, a storm earlier in the week uh, with heavy winds that maybe uh, it knocked a branch loose and the branch was just kind of eventually working its way down to, to fall down. So uh, the dog and I went on our way. Uh, and we turned around and were looping back. And then probably about five minutes after we had been in that exact spot, I heard a huge crash, a huge crack and, and then a crash. And it wasn't just a branch that was falling down. It was an entire tree that had just toppled over, a 40-foot tall tree that had just toppled over. And would have fallen directly on the place where we had been standing five minutes earlier. Now, it didn't hit the street because what happened is as that tree was falling over, it hit another tree, which held it up. And so, you know, now you have, like, the tree standing up that prevented the tree that was falling from hitting the ground. And and the Lord just brought an image to me. I, I hope it's helpful to you. The, the tree that was that had cracked and, and just fell over spontaneously, it seems, uh, just represents the weight of sin and, and the, the consequences of sin. That, that's what we all deserve. And yet the tree that stopped it from, from hitting the ground, from, from hitting me, is the cross. The, the cross that Jesus died on. He took the punishment that you and I deserve on his own back. And he stops us from experiencing the same thing. The Bible tells us he did that in order that we would enjoy God forever. That's my prayer for you today.